No one likes to feel stuck, especially by your cloud. But the IBM cloud is the most open and secure public cloud for business. It can manage all your apps and data anywhere. Smart loves problems. IBM, let's put smart to work. Visit ibm.com slash flexible. Welcome to The Sporting Life with Jeremy Schapp. Over the next hour, Jeremy sits down with 1997 Heisman Trophy finalist Ryan Leaf, who will be calling college football games this fall for ESPN. Kirk was probably the best. He was just like, check your ego at the door. Everybody who works on these broadcasts are so much more important than you. And that's kind of what being a quarterback is. We're going to get all the credit and all the blame when things go bad, but that's not the truth, right? The truth is this team is what will make you. Plus, 2001 Daytona 500 winner Michael Waltrip reflects back on that tragic day when he lost his close friend. Dale Earnhardt. The win was awesome, took the checkered flag, and then of course, a half hour later, I learned that what I thought was the best day in my career turned out to be probably the worst. And author John U. Bacon explains why Jim Harbaugh is still the right coach for Michigan. Who do you think you're going to get next? Who do you think is going to be better than Jim Harbaugh? It's, you know, crazy, and that's where the confidence bordering on arrogance can really bite Michigan in the tail if they listen to that. I can imagine Michigan getting a better candidate right now. This is The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. Here's Jeremy Schapp. Welcome to another edition of The Sporting Life. This week, we're joined by one of the great college football players of his or any era. Now working here at ESPN, just starting here in Bristol. It's a pleasure to welcome to the show again, Ryan Leaf. Ryan, thank you for being with us. You bet, Jeremy. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you now as a colleague. I mean, you know, we've... We've done stories about you. Uh, Tom Rinaldi reported that terrific show produced by John Minton a couple of years ago about your whole journey, growing up, college success, frustrations in the NFL, turning your life around, uh, the way that you inspire people now with your messages. Um, and now you're a member of the media here at ESPN. Um, what are you going to be doing here? Well, I'm going to be covering college football as both a studio and and game analyst. So really revolving around the college football um, aspect of things, which I I think fits. It's what I watch the most of. It's what I prepare for. It's what I love the most. So it it fits pretty good with what I'm with what I'm doing here at ESPN. You live in L.A. though. Um, so are you going to be focused mostly on stuff west of the Mississippi? No, I, you know, they want me to get outside my comfort zone. So like my first two games I'm calling are actually the Tennessee game. And then week three, I'm at Texas A&M. So and after that, you probably don't know it. We don't know yet. So, okay. um, but, I, but I suspect and what my, what my, my bosses have told me is that, you know, they want me to be, uh, someone who can speak to college football on a national level, but love the fact that I have the Pac-12 ties. As a guy who played, uh, you know, as well as you can play at the college level and who was in the NFL, what kind of perspective are you hoping to bring as a commentator? Well, as an analyst in the studio, I'm, I'm going to be, you know, a guy that has an opinion about what he's seeing. Uh, but I think I'm going to be the guy in the booth that is kind of like maybe your your uncle or your dad sitting on the couch watching football. I think I'm probably going to spout out a couple like, I can't believe he dropped it, you know, type of mentality. Or need he more it. of that. That's yeah. great. That's I, I envision that's what um, my dad and I grew up that way. My dad would be kind of like my play-by-play guy. We'd sit and watch college football. He'd go, Ryan's third and five here. And and then I would comment about things. Or, and that's how I want to go into it. And Clay Matvick is my play-by-play partner. And he's been he's been doing this here for almost 14 years. And he's mm. a he's a real pro. So... 
he kind of gets stuck with the new guy every year, and I don't know how well he he appreciates that. But it, I think it's a real compliment to him that when the new guy comes on, even if things go bad, he's he's he can he can write the ship. We're speaking with Ryan Leaf, who was a great quarterback at Washington State in the mid-1990s. He is now working here at ESPN as a college football studio analyst, a game commentator. Um, and a lot of people know your story um, and the work that you've been doing in the last several years, dealing with people who have challenges in their life, uh, addiction issues, and so forth. What are you doing now in that space? Well, it's it, it, it continues. It's the foundation of who I am, right? I mean, if I, the difference is a lot of times when people go into that kind of field, it, it they're identified as that as well. But I had a lot of goals and dreams that I wanted to do, and college football was a big part of it. And um, so when I was able to 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 set that foundation firmly, I was able to kind of map out what my goals wanted to be. My wife and I talked about it, and and this was one of them. So I shadowed. Um, Joe Klatt, I shadowed Kirk Herbstreet, Greg McElroy, Brady Quinn, guys that I really respected. And I wanted to see if I could, A, do this well and, and, and B, if I wanted to do it. And so I did that for about a year and, and got an opportunity to call some games and do some studio work last year. And, you know, sure enough, uh, ESPN came a calling in, in January and it's been a, it's been a wonderful process. Really looking forward to the opportunities. But, what you talked about, what I get to do in terms of being of service to others is is the basis and the foundation of, of, of who I am and will continue to be. Um, you said you, you sought out some uh, expertise from people who've been doing it for a long time. What was the mess, the best message you got about doing this job? Um, you know, enjoy it. Um, and it's something that you have been doing your whole life. You've forgotten more football than some people know and remember that. And, uh, um, you know, Kirk was probably the best. He was just like, you know, leave, check your ego at the door. Everybody who works on these um, broadcasts are so much more important than you. You just happen to get a lot of the, (laughs) and that's kind of what being a quarterback is, right? I mean, coach used to talk to me about how uh, we're going to get all the credit and all the blame when things go bad, but that's not the truth, right? The truth is this team is what will make you. And and they were right. That 97 team was loaded with, with absolute great talent. I got a lot of the exposure. So did Mike Price as the head coach. Um, but I'll be uh, going into the Hall of Fame here in a couple weeks, and it's going to be a celebration uh, of that football team. That's it's great. not going to be about me. I was hesitant even when I got the call because I had, told you and I've told a lot of people that I'm not going to make this about me anymore. And, you know, my mentors kind of got me saddled up the right way and said, Ryan, you know, if you haven't had the life the last few years, they wouldn't have been calling to induct you anyway. So um, that's going to be a celebration of that 97 team here in a couple of weeks. You know, uh, in the last few years, it would be hard not to see that um, if you're doing this job, Tony Romo became so instantly successful. He became, I mean, maybe it was too much, but everybody talked about how Romo just got it and the things he was doing in the booth. And he was an instant star as uh, a color guy calling uh, the NFL. Is, is there anybody you grew up listening to? I mean, obviously you were listening to Keith Jackson doing play by play, doing all the stuff in the pack 12, uh, pack 10 back then. Was there, were there commentators who really captured it for you? Brent Musburger. For me, was, big personality. Yeah, big personality. 
you know, and Montana is a Montana guy. All right, so I, I should have seen that coming. Um, Dick Vermeil uh, called my my really first, you know, second start in college football when we played at Colorado. It was Brent and it was Dick Vermeil calling the game, and I thought that was pretty Not interesting. Um, what what Tony Romo does, um, he just chose to do something different. Phil Sims could have done what Tony Romo's doing. He sees the football field the same way as quarterbacks. Any quarterbacks really see the football field the same way. The difference was is that Tony went outside the box a little bit, and at first, if you know, if Jim Nance hadn't given him like the blessing and told everybody else, because he was really stepping on Jim's yep. uh, words early on, you know, when when Jim's trying to set everything up and talk about what the play is and setting things up for the listener, Tony was jumping in, and at first, some people kind of were like, you know, this isn't how it's gone. This is new. And then don't some, step on Nance, right. right? And when Nance kind of said, "Hey, no, I want to, I want to hear this stuff," um, Tony had free reign, and and then it really kind of came to fruition in an AFC Championship game with Kansas City and New England, and his ability to to see what was coming and also be accurate with what he was saying um, pre-snap. And we just necessarily haven't seen that as much in the play-by-play and commentating side of things. And I think it's, I think you can see a lot more individuals. Ask their play-by-play guy, hey, you know, is this if you see so, if I see something here, are you okay with me jumping in? And if they have a good relationship with that, I, I think you'll see a lot more of that. Speaking with Ryan Leaf, uh, and I, I got to tell you, Ryan, it's weird. It seems like everything I do these days is about Washington State, which is you know, <laughs> it's an important school. But I'm doing a Drew Bledsoe thing. I did a Mike Leach thing. We've talked in the past. You're working here now. Um, I spent a lot of time with Mike Leach over the course of about six or seven months. Uh, what about your Cougars? What about your Cougars this year? I think they're pretty special. You know, I think they're going to be a much improved football team even from a year ago where they won a school record 11 games. The difference is th- their road schedule is just absolutely brutal this year. I mean, they have to go to Houston on a Friday the 13th early in the year. Arizona State, Two Utah, yeah, <laughs> at Utah, at Cal, at Oregon, Jeez. at Washington. Oh, that's tough. So... And he still hasn't beaten Washington, right? No, it's it's a problem. No, I'm it's, sorry. it's a problem. I, I, I didn't it's a problem. To, you know. Mike Leach and I have. We're gonna <laughs> we're gonna have it out at some point over that. I, I as long as I can be there and roll on it. Yeah. Please just wait for me. Um, I would love to see that. You know the cool things about being a Cougar is it, it is it's it's pretty special. You feel, I mean, it's it's pretty crazy what you decide when you're 18 years old in this country. It's nowhere else in, in the world where you make a decision at 18 who you're going to be the rest of your life. Like I'm. I'm going to be a cougar the rest of my life. And you talked about some great ones, Drew Bledsoe. I'm sure you probably dived into his, his wineries and things uh, like that. Literally. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It yeah. was, it was pleasurable. Yeah. Yeah. He, uh, he's done very good for himself in that transition from the NFL where a lot of people struggle. He had a plan in place. I've talked to him about it. He's a smart guy. Yeah. He's a, well, he was raised really well. His father, Mac, and, and his, and his mom there. And um, I was in Kalispell recently to see them. Yeah. yeah right there, right there, there uh, where they have Your a summer place. Yeah, yeah. So. His his sons at Washington State. I'll see him a bunch. Um, uh, we just did a quarterback event back in April. Um, it's always great to see him, and he loves Mike Price too. Yeah, you guys have that in common. Well, I got to tell you, Ryan, it's great to have you here in studio. It's great to have you here in the building on campus, working for ESPN. Your story is so inspirational to so many. It's always great talking to you. Uh, good luck through the season, and uh, maybe Dan Zacheski, our producer, can uh, wrangle you again for another. Yeah, we'll do it anytime you want. Thanks, Jeremy. Thanks, Ryan. This is The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. If you are a fan of NASCAR, you're familiar with the career and the achievements of Michael Waltrip. If you're not, 
a fan of NASCAR. And if you're not familiar with Michael Waltrip, you will soon have the opportunity to learn his remarkable story because a new film is coming out. It is called In the Blink of an Eye, and it is based on Michael Waltrip's memoir. It is especially about his relationship with Dale Earnhardt. And it is also uh, very much about the 2001 Daytona 500, which was um, such a consequential and tragic event, and also at the same time, a triumph for Michael Waltrip. And it is a pleasure to welcome to The Sporting Life, Michael Waltrip. Michael, thank you for being with us. Oh, I appreciate you having me. How's it going? And uh, great introduction. You couldn't have said it better. Well, I, I, I appreciate that. Thank you. And I got to say, you know, your story, there is so much there. Uh, it is so compelling. Uh, it's not just about, obviously, what happened in 2001 in Daytona. Uh, your whole story up to that point, having never won a race in more than 400 attempts up to that point, and what came together that day, what transpired, as you say, in the blink of an eye at the finish. Can you try to put it into words? I can try, and, and that's what the, the documentary is all about, trying to explain to folks the relationship that I had with Dale and the belief that he had in me. He believed that if I drove for him, I could win despite the fact that I had lost more races than any NASCAR racer ever had and then had and then won one. So the crazy thing, Jeremy, is I woke up February 18, 2001, and I told my family, told my friends, I said, they ain't beating me today. I woke up with that attitude despite the fact I'd lost all those races because that's where Dale Earnhardt had me mentally. He had me a car I knew I could win in, and he believed I could win, and I woke up that morning thinking I was going to win. And the win was awesome, took the checkered flag. And then, of course, a half hour later, I learned that what I thought was the best day in my career turned out to be probably the worst. Of course, you're talking about the death of Dale Earnhardt at the end of that race. How in the moment did you even begin to process everything that was going on, Michael? You know, it just was interesting. As a as a competitor, as a racer, I I got to victory lane. I couldn't wait to hug my wife and see my daughters and celebrate with my team. And the thing that I looked most forward to was Dale coming to victory lane and giving me a hug, a big hug. I'd seen Dale Jr. win his first cup race at Texas in the spring of 2000, and Dale Jr. got that hug from his dad, and I knew that hug was coming, and I kept looking at the, the, the gate into victory lane thinking, when's Dale going to get here? When's Dale coming? And um, as time passed and he didn't show, I began to get more and more concerned and like, what's wrong? Why isn't Dale here? And, you know, nobody in victory lane really knew. They just knew he'd been in an accident and he was probably getting checked out at the infield care center. And that's, that's what I believe. That's what I thought. And I have a friend that raced in that race that day. He's actually in the wreck with Dale, and his name is Kenny Schrader. And Kenny came into victory lane, and he grabbed me. And he looked, he looked sad. He looked, like, solemn, which was crazy because I thought he would be so happy for me. And I looked at him, and we joke around a lot. I looked at him, and I said, Kenny, it ain't that bad that I wanted to come to 500, is it? And he said, Mike, it's bad. I just want you to know. I want you to be prepared. It's bad. And uh, he said, Dale's not good. And he left Victory Lane. And then, you know, I just, I didn't know what that meant, but I didn't like what I heard. 
and eventually I, you know, was 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 uh, told that Dale had had died in that crash on the last lap. We're speaking with Michael Waltrip, who won that 2001 Daytona 500 consequential race in so many ways and as we've already described a tragedy um up to that point in your career you were 38 years old when you won that race you had never won a race as i said earlier in more than 400 attempts to do so you were kind of the quintessential nascar journeyman and many people knew you mostly as daryl's little brother um how did your relationship with dale earnhardt flourish one of the great figures in the sport obviously well i think that's an interesting part of the story. So when I moved to North Carolina, I moved in with Richard Petty. Um, I was Daryl's little brother, like you said, but Daryl lived in Tennessee, and, and he didn't really help me uh, get to North Carolina or get into NASCAR that much. I think my brother's philosophy was, I'm winning races. I made your last name mean something in this world. Figure it out on your own. That, that was Daryl's attitude. And so that's what I was trying to do. And that's what I did. But doing it meant that getting to North Carolina through a couple of acquaintances, um, I moved in with Richard Petty. Richard Petty suggested that I go NASCAR racing. Don't mess around with the Little League. Go big time. And that's what I did. And in, in doing so, um, and being a NASCAR racer, I think Dale Earnhardt appreciated the fact that, you know, his, his big, my big brother didn't hand me the keys to the family car. You know, my big brother said, figure it out, and I did. And in doing so, um, I think Dale thought I think Dale thought that was pretty cool, that I was able to, to work, work it out. And we became buddies, and he always told me um, all throughout the years, you get in my car, buddy, you'll win. You'd win in one of my cars. So I was like, well, damn, let me have one of them. And uh, late 2000, he said, I figured it out. I want you to drive for me. And... Uh, the, the three or four months leading up to the 2001 were probably the greatest career moments of my life, just going to the shop and listening to Dale and talking to Dale about how we were going to win races. And that was that was something I'll never forget. And, and I, I, I just couldn't wait not only to win for Dale, but I wanted to lose. I wanted, I wanted to lose a race and then have Dale say, here's how we're going to win the next one. And, um, you know, I went... I went one for one driving for Dale, and unfortunately, I didn't get to drive for him anymore. We're speaking with Michael Waltrip. The new documentary, based on his memoir written in 2011, the documentary is coming out uh, in September, is In the Blink of an Eye, and it tells the remarkable story of his career, his life, his friendship with his mentor, Dale Earnhardt, uh, and of course, his victory at the Daytona 500 in February 2001. Michael, that uh, that moment, that blink of an eye, as you put it, so much changed for you. Uh, your career, uh, your reputation in the sport, uh, your boss was no longer alive. Uh, how did you move on from that moment? Well, I didn't move on well for a few months. Um, I really just, I didn't, I didn't process everything that happened very well and I, I don't think I don't think anybody should be surprised by that it was certainly um, a difficult time in my life and um, think about this Jeremy I went to the racetrack losing all those races in a row and the next place I wanted to be was the racetrack 
I wanted to get back and try again. And then after winning the 2001 Daytona 500 and losing Dale, you know, I just didn't really want to be at the races. That 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 that, that didn't. That's not where I where my mind was mentally. I was a mess. And um, you know, eventually, the 2001 return to Daytona, the July race um, in Daytona, it loomed. And I told my wife, I told my family, I said, I'm going to go get revenge. I'm going to go. I'm going to go get my payback on that place. I'm going to win that race. And while I didn't win the 2001 race in July, Dale Jr. and I ran one two. We celebrated in our cars in the infield. Maybe one of the best victory celebrations in the history of NASCAR. Uh, 180,000 fans in the stands cheering loudly uh, about us accomplishing a one-two finish. Uh, that that race it didn't heal me. Obviously, nothing will ever fix what went on in in February, but it certainly rejuvenated my energy and my um, my desire to, to race a car and. Um, and, and so I just moved forward. And I really never talked much about what happened in Daytona. And so I wrote the book in, in 11. And, uh, and now having the documentary and being able to, to share the story with, with the world, it's just a, it's a chance for me to honor Dale. And that's exactly what, what my desire is. How did that day change the sport? Well, it certainly put us on our heels for a while. And it also gave us a chance to... Um, to look at the safety of the cars and how we could make them safer for racers uh, that wanted to be a part of NASCAR. And interestingly enough, I lost friends during that time, four friends of mine in the last year prior to Dale's crash had died. And, you know, we were, as a family, as a dad, we were dealing with that. How can we race safely and, and what's going on in our sport? Fortunately, no one has died since. Think about that, Jeremy. No one since Dale passed in 2001 in the big series of NASCAR has lost their lives. It's amazing. Everything about what we did or what we do um, improved. And it was in the work. You know, we, were, we, we obviously, as an industry, were like, okay, this is, is dangerous. we got to figure out how to keep our drivers, our stars, our, our racers safer. And um, Dale's, Dale's death certainly put an exclamation point on that and i think a lot of the, the safety initiatives ramped up and we were able to um to help drivers hit walls have crashes and not sustain life-threatening injuries we're speaking with michael waltrip he won the great american race in 2001 he is a commentator covering the sport for fox sports um you know michael there was a moment um and it lasted for a while. It was a long moment, if you will, where NASCAR was um, really in the ascendancy in popular culture, in the sporting mainstream in this country. And it seems perhaps to have peaked. Uh, you know the issues better than I do. Some of the you know ratings issues and attendance issues and competitiveness issues. Um, how do you assess the state of NASCAR right now? It's kicking back. It's, it's a 2001 um, is long past, and, and arguably 2006 or seven we peaked, and recently um, things have started to go in a different direction. And the race at Bristol is a great example of that. Nearly 100,000 people in the stands cheering 
great racing on this track. So I think uh, as a whole, things are heading in a great direction. The the ratings are up a tick. Uh, the attendance is up. The energy, the excitement, everything is, is going in the right direction for NASCAR in 2019. These days, Michael, and we're speaking with Michael Waltrip, of course, who won the Daytona 500 in 2001, the new documentary In the Blink of an Eye, based on his memoir published in 2011, co-written with Ellis Hennigan. What's your relationship now with with your brother, Daryl? Um, it, it's great. I mean, I love my brother. We uh, He was with me at the industry screening of the documentary, and he's very honest in his his comments and, and his talk through the, the documentary. And, um, you know, quite frankly, I wouldn't have made it to where I did. If, I mean, I'd hate to – the odds would have been greater of me making it to – the victory lane in Daytona if my brother Daryl hadn't paved the path for me. I took advantage of that path and I rode it hard and I'm thankful that for what I accomplished and the talents that God gave me. But a huge part of my success is because of my brother Daryl. I love him much. He's a good man. Had a great career as a broadcaster and uh, I appreciate him much. What's your relationship like with Dale Jr.? Well, Jeremy, let me tell you about my relationship with Dale Jr. The reason why, um, when I when I finished the documentary, I cared much about what two people thought about the the product, the documentary. And one was my my ex wife Buffy, because she lived it with me. Uh, we we I have a doc, I have a podcast I do every week, and she's my next week's guest. So her opinion of 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 the of the doc and how it was told meant the world to me. He was part of it as well. And then what Dale Jr. thought, because obviously uh, we were we were brought together on a, on a crazy day in, in 2001. So what Dale Jr. thought about it meant, meant the world to me. And both of them loved, both participated in it, and he, he's my buddy. Michael Waltrip's new documentary, based on his memoir, is in the blink of an eye. It tells the remarkable story of his career, his triumph after more than 400 defeats, winning the 2001 Daytona 500 racing for Dale Earnhardt, who died at the conclusion of that race in a wreck. Michael, it's really been a pleasure having you here on the show. Thank you so much for having joined us. Well, Jeremy, it's an honor to be with you. Thank you for telling um, the story about my documentary. You can get tickets for the September 12th viewing of my show um, at blinkofaneyefilm.com. And, um, you know, it, it, it's special to me. It's special to be able to honor my friend Dale and tell the story that I don't think any NASCAR fans really know. And for you to be able to have some time with me and help me to to, to, to let people know that it's coming out and, and how, how important of a documentary I think it is for the NASCAR world, Uh, It means the world to me, so thank you, sir. Oh, thank you. It is a remarkable story and documentary. Michael Waltrip. This is The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. Our next guest is the author of a new book, Overtime, Jim Harbaugh and the Michigan Wolverines at the Crossroads of College Football. The author is John U. Bacon, who returns to the show. John, thanks for being with us. Jeremy, always a pleasure. John, I've spent some time with 
Jim Harbaugh over the years, going back to his playing days in the NFL. And I'll start by saying this. There aren't a lot of genuinely eccentric people you meet, <laughs> you know, on a daily basis or an annual basis for that matter. Jim strikes me as just such a person. How does that personality benefit a program such as the University of Michigan, which is um, you know, one of the prestige uh, blue ribbon programs in college football and has been for a century? Well, first, I've been around the block, too, a little while, and I'd say you're probably right, that he's one of the last of the true eccentrics in the old days, Dizzy Dean and Casey Stengel, plenty of them. Right. Uh, and, your, and your dad, Dan, so on, and now, not so much. Jim still qualifies. He loves to use language from the 1930s, talking about youngsters and whatnot. Right. Um, so he always enjoys that. Uh, I would say, for the most part, uh, his often monomaniacal pursuit of this is probably, like you said, uh, more help than hindrance. Um, no question the guy is focused. The hours are crazy. The hours are crazy for all head coaches, obviously, Dabo Sweeney and Saban included. Um, but Jim's intensity seems to rifle through the whole building. And one of the chapters I've gotten there is it takes a village. Uh, 67 staffers work 100 hours each per week, uh, every week. And in the offseason, 50 hours, not just the coaches. We're talking nutritionists, strength coaches, mm. recruiting coordinators, you name it. Uh, so that kind of intensity can certainly bode well for the rest of the building. We're speaking with John U. Bacon about his fascinating new book about one of the most fascinating characters in sports. No question about it. Jim Harbaugh, the book's titled Overtime, Jim Harbaugh and the Michigan Wolverines at the Crossroads of College Football. Um, what are the roads leading into that intersection? The crossroads, I would say two things. One is uh, kind of on two levels. One, in Jim's case, of course, this is year five coming up. And although internally with the athletic director at Michigan Ward Manual, the vote is one nothing in Jim's favor. <laughs> that is ultimately all that matters. It's not really a hot seat as far as that goes. But no doubt publicly with the national media, national fans, even a growing chunk of Michigan fans, I'd say a minority of 10 to 15, 20 percent. Uh, the Grumman is beginning about not being beating Ohio State, not winning a Big Ten title, not competing for a national title, of course, not yet. He's been close to all those things, but not done any of them. Um, in that sense, the question is, can he get the program back to where it was more than a decade ago, about 15 years ago, um, or can he not? So in that sense, it's a crossroads for him. I would also think, too, and I bet you agree with this, the sport itself is at a crossroads based on safety, the perception of safety, the benefit of parents to let their kids play the game, uh, the recruiting business. The, some schools are cheating. Some schools aren't, of course. Which direction is the whole thing going to go? And that, of course, the sport itself, I believe, is at a pretty major crossroads as well. One of the things we think about when we talk about Jim Harbaugh, a coach who came from the NFL as a player, who coached in the NFL, reached a Super Bowl as a head coach, of course, with the San Francisco 49ers. I, he has an impeccable resume, and yet people still question his acumen as a coach, which just seems insane, <laughs> right? I mean, here's a guy who did great things at Stanford as a head coach. He did great things uh, with the San Francisco 49ers. His teams have been very strong in his first few seasons at Michigan, and yet people are, aren't still really sold on him as a football guru. Why is that? And that is a great question. And unlike his mentor, Bo Schimmeckler, Jim, as you know, is a 14-year NFL quarterback. You've got to believe he learns along the way, as well as, of course, highly successful at all those 
coaching stops, I would say two things, one internally and one externally, and I'll reverse that. Externally, all week long during the season, he is overrated, overblown, overdue, all this stuff, hmm. uh, overpaid, et cetera, et cetera, until Monday comes along and some NFL team, of course, has lost, and Everett <laughs> says the same guy who can't coach a lick is going to go to Indianapolis, Chicago, New York, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So for some reason, he's both incompetent and highly in demand <laughs> within the same week. Now, that's the external view. The internal view, of course, Michigan fans, I love them dearly. I grew up here in Ann Arbor. Uh, these are my, these are my, this is my posse, if you will. I've got to be objective myself, but nonetheless. Nonetheless, love them do, Jeremy. My line about them is some Michigan fans are not happy unless they're not happy. They can find things to complain about. Uh, in a 38 nothing whitewash of Notre Dame a few years ago, I was doing a radio show with Jamie Morris, the old tailback, and we jokingly asked the Michigan fans to complain about something in that amazing game versus Notre Dame. They filled two hours, no problem. So how, who they think they're going to get, you know, if you got Harbaugh, you know, by all kinds of crazy, you know, it's falling in the right direction to get him from the NFL to come back to Michigan. Uh, who do you think you're going to get next? Yeah. Who do you think is going to be better than Jim Harbaugh? It's, you know, crazy. And that's where the confidence bordering on arrogance can really bite Michigan in the tail if they listen to that. I can't imagine Michigan getting a better candidate right now. Yeah, well, I, I suspect our producer, Dan Zakchewski, is going to excise this portion of the conversation. But, but as a Cornell man, we take great pride in the fact that I believe, unless something has changed recently, the Cornell is the only school to have played Michigan at least five times to have a winning record against the Wolverines. I bet that's probably right. And the last game was, what, 47 or 48? It was something like that. I mean, <laughs> it counts. I mean, you know, it's not like college football didn't exist before, you know, not at all. But, of course, he's dominated for many decades. And hey, your dad's a proud Cornell grad as well. That's exactly right. Uh, that's exactly I think lacrosse right. was his sport. Lacrosse was Brown. his game. That's right. He played against that's Jim Brown. That's Fuzzy Thurston's book, Midnight, by the way, so in Green Bay. <laughs> but tell uh, tell your man, tell your producer, I don't recommend a rescheduling. No rematch. Right, right. Not, uh, hang, on, hang on to the record. Yeah. Um, so here's a here's another thing about Harbaugh that you know I always because I, I'm 50 now and I was covering the NFL back when he was a quarterback in the league and you know he he kind of um resurrected himself after leaving the Bears with the Colts and right. he used to always give that same kind of speech about how his life was a country music song I think it was his girlfriend dumped <laughs> him and I think dog his dog died. died that you know the speech right and yep. and and I heard him say it so many times and I think he came to believe that it really did represent a significant part of his story. Is he still that guy whose life was a country music song and he found a way to pick up the pieces and find success? Uh, more than I would have expected. I always thought, Jim, we're the same age, actually, and I grew up playing baseball against him and hockey with him for one season. And one of us, Jerry, was, Jeremy, was a great athlete. I won't tell you who. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but he was eccentric back then. He's you know The, the engine was buzzing very high back then as well. But I always saw him as this kind of golden boy, this great athlete in football, basketball, and uh, baseball. Started in the varsity. All three of those as a sophomore at Ann Arbor Pioneer mm. High School, which was the biggest in the state at the time. So it's a very rare accomplishment. And his older brother, John, well known to you, uh, was a great athlete, but nowhere near as good as Jim. Uh, but John, in our long interview for this book, pointed out that actually Jim was usually an outsider in all these situations and had a clause way to respectability. Palo Alto High, he was a backup and had to beat the favored quarterback. Uh, Stanford did not even recruit him, even though his dad was a defensive coordinator. Mm. Mission gave him a scholarship at the last minute. 
he's you know number six or seven on that flow chart. Uh, Dick didn't want him. Wallenstead didn't want him with the Bears. Uh, Dick Tobin, the GM, did. Same thing at uh, Indianapolis. He's always trying to beat out somebody ahead of him who is favored. And I never saw him that way, but I think that Jim's life has been that way most of the time. In the early 2000s, Eastern Michigan University, the graveyard of coaches, would not even give him an interview. The opposite of and, Miami of Ohio. I like that. Exactly yeah. right. The, the, the antimatter, if you will, <laughs> of Miami of Ohio. Uh, the graveyard of coaches, they would not even give Jim an interview for a job that they gave to two other guys and ended up going like 15 and mm. 70. Uh, so even he had to prove himself. Uh, so I think you're right. In some ways, Jim is, in many ways, an underdog in most of his pursuits. Well, once again, uh, the stakes are high for the Wolverines and for Jim Harbaugh, who is certainly accustomed to being on some kind of a hot seat, uh, whatever it is, the new book, Overtime, Jim Harbaugh and the Michigan Wolverines at the Crossroads of College Football. John, thanks for joining us. Jeremy, thanks. And by the way, readers out there, get his book on Jesse Owens. It is fantastic. Oh, thank you. Especially to say that in Ohio State, man. I take uh, (laughs) a lot of satisfaction. (laughs) True praise. John U. Bacon. (laughs) Thanks for having joined us. I'm Jeremy Schapp, and this has been The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio. We're on every Saturday and every Sunday morning at 6 Eastern Time.